Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Joined today with uh, by my uh, partner, Rob Geary. We've got Faisal away um, oh, for a couple of weeks, I guess. So it's mm-hmm. going to be you and I uh, back to back here, Rob. Um, we're going to continue our conversation about some of the choppiness and the volatility we continue to see in the markets. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, but it's going to be an interesting show today because we've, got, um, we've had some recent uh, political turnover, right? Mm-hmm. We've got Jen- Jason Kenney uh, saying he's going to be stepping down. What's the future of the UCP? Who's running? What are the issues we're going to be running on, you know, leading up to an election sort of in a, in a year's time? We've got a bit of time there. But I think we should start exploring that. And, um, you know, it's important to Albertans that we're going to have strong leadership. And how do we take this economy, which, which quite frankly, is the strongest economy in Canada right now, but how do we continue to rebuild? We've gone yeah. through a long period of time, and we need a strong leader to do that. So we're going to explore that a little bit today. Um, we're also going to talk about um, pre-planning. Uh, memorial services. So, you know, the end of the retirement journey as an individual uh, is that we all eventually pass away. Uh, that's not the end for the family. And so we want to talk about um, and educate people a little bit about what that process looks like and should they be pre-planning it, what goes into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll start that conversation today. Perfect. Perfect. Let's talk about markets. My friend, you, uh, fi- by the way, you did a great job uh, on media this week. Uh, you were filling in for Faisal. You filled in for me a couple of times. Love it. You're doing a great job. We've had some great feedback. So, number one, thank you and congratulations. Well done. It's, um, it's a daunt- It was daunting, but, uh, yeah. you know, it gets, it gets less and less over time. And it's, yeah. If you're just reporting what we need to know on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, no, but to communicate that, that way, right? Yeah, no, it's interesting. <laughs> Anyways, good, nice job. Uh, I thought I'd recognize you for that. Let's talk about the market. So this week, uh, you know, you and I were talking uh, before doing the show, and uh, you know, you, volatility. You, you just can't. The, the number one word that pops up is uncertainty and volatility. Mm-hmm. But let, let's let's sort of get beyond that a little bit because there was some interesting stories this week yeah. that uh, that shook the markets. And let me throw this notion of retail sales because mm-hmm. I think you did a really cool job of. Uh, of investigating and then doing some reporting on what was happening with respect to retail sales and the implications for the broader economy. Yeah, and so it, there was a lot of reporting this year on, on retail sales. We'll call them the bellwethers on what we can use and the more economic ones. So let's talk about Walmart, Target. Mm-hmm. So everyday people going to stores to buy what they need that sell a majority of goods. Sales were okay. Mm-hmm. Sales were fine. The problem on the bottom line was was margin compression here, and it was based on a lot of inflationary pressure on intercompany, right? Costs that they're fuel, freight, labor, all those things going up. So companies are feeling it too, right? But it, it did speak to what you know. You you mentioned to me what I found interesting is sort of there's been an inventory. If you just look at Target, because Target got whacked this week, yeah, right, and maybe they were the um, uh, the, the poster child for mm-hmm. this particular problem, but it looks like a particular segment of the population, right, is having a problem because their customer group, Walmart, would be included in that, isn't necessarily buying some of those uh, bigger discretionary mm-hmm. items like TVs and so on and so forth. And that yeah. was reflected in their inventory numbers. Yeah, both of those companies, Walmart and and Target, said y- yes, customers are coming in, customers are spending, but more on groceries, right. Right, and not on some of those ticket items, and that's starting to slow, which is affecting margin. Right, right. Some of those big ticket items are, are the more companies make more. Right? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's items. right. What I, what I find interesting about that, and, and again, the next, I think the next three, four, five months maybe, um, we're going to be watching pretty closely what happens with inflation data, right? Seeing that March-April data, the April data still running hotter than expected, but coming down from March, a lot of questions being asked if we've seen peak inflation. Mm-hmm. We know the impact. It's starting to certainly uh, hit the lowest income earning portion of the population right now. And I think that's what Walmart and Target's yeah. reports really reflected, right? Now, the other thing that's interesting is is when we, you know, we're talking about those inventory builds, well, they're going to have to get rid of that inventory. So think about that from a supply chain perspective, right? So one of the problems that we've had that's created inflationary pressure is that we couldn't get products. Hmm. Some of these companies now have an abundance of inventory. Mm-hmm. That probably means that we could see some discounting coming up, mm-hmm. right? Wonder what, you know, we'll watch for the effect of that. It will likely have an impact on margins, but it could also be at the same time bringing inflation down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's some interesting connections there to, to watch. Now, I, I was also interested in, because in, I was listening to your story on, um, on, on Lowe's and, and Home Depot. So some of that data came out too. Not necessarily the same story as Walmart and Target. No, no. They had, um, they had decent numbers. And some of that was more seasonal. Right. right? So they could have a, a backup here. Mm-hmm. And there was, well, we're experiencing crappy weather. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, a lot of Lowe's specifically was 35% of theirs is from patios and barbecues and seasonal, right. seasonal items. So, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they will see a delay on that, and that could pick up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they weren't forecasting, right? Th- those management teams weren't necessarily forecasting what Targets and Walmart's senior management teams were forecasting in terms of slowdowns, right? The do-it-yourself versus the home rentals. Yes, there's less of that going on, but but they, they weren't seeing a reduction in sales inventory builds, right? So it was very no. different amongst the retailers. Yeah, you're right. Right? The whole sector got nailed without, yeah. without a doubt. Uh, but it does look like there are some differences amongst the companies themselves, and who their end, you know, their yeah. end user is. And, and listen, I don't, I, I didn't read this story out fully, but I remember seeing the headline this week about Burberry. Um, and I, I think as we do a little bit of investigation into some of the luxury goods retailers, that we might see again a different story there. Right, a different segment of the population hasn't necessarily been hit in the same, you know, they have, mm-hmm. there's a wealth disparity and it hasn't affected everybody the same way. And so I think we could start to see a separation of some of those retailers depending on who their client segmentation yeah. is. I caught a couple of those stories. Burberry is one and the other one was Mercedes. All right, right. right? That they're getting out of some of the lower market vehicles. Right. And going to focus on the high end, high margin. Right. Yeah, I, I think we have to keep a, a, a keen eye uh, to that. However, the overall market, so so that retail sector mm-hmm. and that, that inflationary fear, profit margin fear, it affected the stock market. Not a lot going on in the bond market there. So it is interesting to, to look at those two different markets and say, well, you know, uh, you get a big sell-off, a thousand point sell-off in the, in the Dow. Um, and, you know, not much going on in the bond markets, which would imply, at least at this point, that a lot of that interest rate risk, the fear of the Fed raising rates, you know, um, going through... Um, already baked into the bond market, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of wiggle room there on, on credit qualities, right? So if, oh, I wonder if Target can, you know, pay the right. debt that, you know, the interest on the debt that's coming up and so on and so forth, maybe get a bit there. But I was interested to watch the bond market's reaction to that, noting that that really it looks like a lot of that interest rate risk is now is now baked in. Yeah. And forward forward looking guidance on a lot of that the retail, I mean it was we'll have to see. That was that was pricing in recession too. Right. Right. Slow down. 
Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. Wiped out what twenty five percent of the company's value effectively in in a one day trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah targets uh, of targets yeah. uh, one day trade. Um, what else caught your interest, if anything, in the market? The you know to to me that the downward pressure is there, right? So we momentum in the market is a real thing, mm-hmm. and momentum sure seems to be negative right now. We saw a number of instances throughout the week where you uh, you know the market would catch a bid, uh, and then late day you you get some sellers some sellers in. On the one hand, and you know, on the one hand, you say, well, there's buyers and sellers yep. in the market. That's positive. It's not. It's not one way. Um, you've got a pretty active price discovery around: is this recession or not a recession? Is it a technical recession? Is it a, a deep traditional recession? I mean, there's a whole bunch going on. So I was I was encouraged to see buyers uh, and sellers in the market, yep. but the, I would say the momentum is still is still pessimistic. Absolutely, yeah. I, right. I feel like the yeah we, we there's it's a waiting pattern right now. Right, right. right. And and again, I think. We're going to watch. We're going to watch that inflation data and um, a lot of the market. The market, I think, will take a lot of its cues going forward from from that inflationary pressure that we're seeing. Right. And there's no doubt going to be a difference between companies, whether it's retail market or not, in terms of navigating the cost pressures that they're seeing and the impact on the profit margins. Right. And I think who their ultimate customer is, is also going to play a big role in the short term about whether inflation means that the money spent with that company is now being redirected towards gasoline, food, and the necessities of life, yep. right? Or if it's or if their products are, are inelastic and required by consumers that can afford them. It'll be a very interesting few months. Okay, I, I think that gives us a pretty good take on, um, on this week in the markets. Politics, my friend, uh, something that touches all of our lives. Politics, taxes, all of those things consistent among us. And there's some changes at the top of the UCP mm-hmm. party in Alberta. And I think we need to understand a little bit about what that means, how it's going to impact us. What are the stories and what are the key topics that, um, you know, we think that are going to be relevant to uh, to Albertans as we go through this. We've got a terrific guest to help us. Laurie Williams, Associate Professor of Mount Royal University. She's been with us before. Welcome back, Laurie. We always appreciate your time and input. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Okay, well, we have uh, maybe the setup was good, maybe it wasn't, but I would like maybe just to start with a bit of an open-ended question and give you uh, an opportunity to to maybe address uh, the most recent leadership vote, how it played out, uh, whether you were surprised, and what you think, uh, what do you think the future is going to hold here with respect to the leadership of the UCP? Well, the only surprise for me, because we knew there was a fairly broad range within which um, this the, the vote could actually come, given everything Jason Kenney said about 50, 50% plus one being enough for him to continue as leader, the thing that, that surprised me was that he uh, that he, said, he announced that he would be stepping down on uh, on the night of the of the count, <clears throat> knowing that on Thursday he was going to be facing a, a caucus mutiny. Um, I think either he or, or those who spoke with him um, before he came out realized that this was was untenable. Um, the divisions within the party, I think, are quite are quite deep and persistent. It's possible that this that this uh, stepping aside um, and now we know continuing as premier. It's possible that that may uh, placate those who were really gunning for Jason Kenney to to resign. 
And I guess we'll see what happens going forward. Uh, Friday morning, uh, Jason Kenney gave a press press conference that sounded like uh, a campaign speech, highlighting all the things that he's done and wants to continue doing, um, how he's going to stand up for Albertans. He's going to be uh, going to the United States. He's going to the Western Premier's Conference, advocating for Alberta's interests, referring yet again to that 117-page campaign platform from the 19... sorry, the 2019 uh, uh, election campaign, he, he's he's very much uh, focused on, as he has been even before he became premier, very much focused on the plan and doesn't seem to want to veer off of that in, in any way. Lord, maybe understand where, where the points of contention are going to be and the battleground will be fought over leadership and so on and so forth. Maybe you can just give us a quick synopsis of what you think brought us to this point um, it's been a, obviously a tough two or three years, lots of contentious points, but in your opinion, give us the background and sort of what's got us to here. Well, the first thing that absolutely needs to be said is that in spite of those who were claiming this was all about COVID, it, it was not. It wasn't even about uh, the economic challenges that Jason Kenney's government faced in the in the early days with those low oil, oil prices, negative oil prices and so forth. Um, this has two main components to it. One is just the coalition of conservative parties made up of people that have profoundly different views, values, beliefs, aspirations, ideas about how democracy should run and so forth. So we really have two separate parties that came together in this fragile coalition. Jason Kenney was able to persuade people to set aside their differences for the sake of some common goals. The big one in the initial stages was winning the next election and defeating the NDP. Um, but that, that fragile coalition is one that's only been uh, manageable by one leader so far in, in Canada, and that was Stephen Harper at the federal level. We've seen the coalition turn against uh, leaders that didn't sufficiently uh, respond to one faction or another of the party. Uh, that disaffection sort of grew and, and metastasized for Aaron O'Toole, for Andrew Scheer, and now it seems to have happened for... For Jason Kenney. So in spite of the fact that Jason Kenney wanted everybody to focus on the next election, wanted to focus on uh, on other things besides the divisions within the party, uh, there were a lot of divisions that were centered around Jason Kenney in, 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 in particular. And so that's the other set of things we need to think about. First is just the, the nature of these coalition uh, conservative parties that are very, very difficult to manage. And the other is Jason Kenney's style of leadership. So having signed that grassroots guarantee with the big sign behind him promising to consult with the grassroots, to to listen to the grassroots and so forth, uh, his leadership style was re- described as elitist, uh, as bullying. Uh, he and his staff uh, had a pattern of calling names, people calling people names for those who disagreed with them. Um, dismissing the concerns, often the very legitimate concerns that they raised, as uh, as not worthy of, of attention, and and uh, and then in some cases changing the policy uh, after fighting against it for days, months, weeks, years, uh, finally changing the position and acting as though those battles had never had never even taken place. So that lack of sort of connection with the grassroots, the attacking of those who disagree, just grew a, a larger and larger gulf between Jason Kenney and the voters he needed to support him. So we had MLAs, uh, and, and I'm including them amongst the voters because they vote in caucus, the MLAs, 
the uh, the constituency association boards and presidents, the uh, uh, the grassroots voters, if you like, um, an increasing groundswell of them were becoming angry and motivated against Jason Kenney. Now, with him aside, there's a possibility of bringing people back together for a shared vision uh, of the future. But those divisions remain. And it's really important to remember, these are former Wild Rose and progressive conservative uh, some of them MLAs who were attacking one another across the legislature for years, and they don't really um, agree with one another. They don't really like one another. They don't really respect one another. And and those sort of acrimonious roots, I think, are, are going to continue to perform a challenge to the point where we're hearing people across the ideological spectrum questioning whether this party is sustainable, whether it can be governed, whether they can stay together. It'll be a real test of, of leadership for whoever takes takes on the helm. Right. Well, yeah. Speaking of that, you know, I, we've heard that he's going to stay in power until they find a successor and all that. So coming up into election year, what do you what do you anticipate happening here going forward? Well, a lot of questions. Um, I, the, some of the questions I had were answered in, in the Friday presser. Jason Kenney clearly is intending on continuing with that 117-page plan that, uh, that he came into government with. Um, he's, he's, again, sort of saying promises made, promises kept, all the legislation that he's passed, basically touting his record um, and saying what he's going to continue to do until, uh, until the leadership question is settled. We're hearing some strategists and, and supporters of Jason Kenney thinking that they're going to sort of test the waters and see that see whether he himself can can run for the leadership, um, because we've heard him say, "Don't don't compare me to the Almighty. Compare me to the alternatives." Well, if the alternatives are Brian Jean, Danielle Smith, and a couple of his cabinet ministers, he may think he's got a better chance of winning the leadership race than than anyone else. Uh, and doing so with a big enough number that that can quell some of this dissent that we've heard up until this point. I mean, given the the visceral dissent that has been erupting for for years now, uh, I I don't see that that's going to be a, a a sustainable path. But apparently, it is being considered. Um, what we want to look at now is now that we know basically where got, uh, Jason Kenney and 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 his continued premiership are are going to be going. Now the questions will turn. To uh, to other matters like when will the leadership vote be held? Uh, I suspect it will be in the fall after the the federal uh, leadership conservative leadership race is settled. So maybe late September into October, uh, and then it'll be a matter of that uh, of that new leader trying to to um, persuade the party to join with the leader in in the fight for the next election, um, introduce themselves to Albertans if they aren't already known, uh, and and somehow cobble together a vision that that uh, enough of those members can can sign on to. The problem is, if it is a Danielle Smith or, or a Brian Jean, what's going to happen to the people that are the, on the moderate wing of, of the party? Some of the things that Jace, that, that uh, Brian Jean and Danielle Smith have said and, and supported aren't going to fly very well with folks uh, at the center uh, or center right. Uh, never mind uh, voters in general. I mean, could they win an election with with some of the history that they've got behind them? If it's a cabinet minister, they would have the liability of being at the table when a lot of these controversial uh, policies that Jason Kenney has pursued have been uh, have been pursued. So um, it could be an outsider. Uh, Ron Ambrose has said no. Uh, Michelle Rample Garner is is being considered as a 
as a, a potential um, leader. Uh, but you have to wonder who would want to take this on. I mean, this is this is a, a recipe for not just challenges, but but being attacked and and possibly ultimately being unsuccessful. As I said, only one has been successful so far. So do you want to risk your political future and reputation on trying to lead this bunch? Um, that's an open question. Lori, I want to thank you. We're, we're quickly running out of time. I suspect that we're going to have an opportunity to talk about this several more times over the coming months. If you'll be good enough to join us, we'll keep in touch with you on that and get your analysis of, of how things are progressing. But I wanted to, to just take a minute and thank you for shedding some light on what's happened and where you, know, where you think the, the key battleground and the key players are going to be. I appreciate that. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've been joined by Lori Williams, Associate Professor at Mount Royal University. Rob, we talk about planning... Um, in, in a number of different aspects. Mm-hmm. Like when we talk about the four buckets and planning around income and, and growth and uh, health and legacy and tax and all those kinds of things, you know, one of the areas I don't think we've done a show on, at least not, <clears throat> not in my recollection, is sort of pre-planning memorial services. And it's, it tends to be a time of, of stress, right? Mm-hmm. Something's happened in a family's uh, uh, life and, um, you know, they've lost, lost someone they've loved. And and, you know, is it a good idea to have some of those things thought through and planned in advance so that you're not trying to deal with it at that time? Yeah, I, I think it's a great conversation to have. I've been through it personally with my own family and felt the stress and feeling like you're just getting thrown decisions that you have to make on the spot and that's it. So I think that the planning is a big thing. Well, and Teresa Jones is going to join us today, right? Nobody better than the owner and funeral director at Choice Memorial to help us understand what that process mm-hmm. looks like and, and, and what's involved. So, Teresa, first of all, thank you. Welcome to the show, and thank you for taking some time with us. Thank you, Stephen Rob. I appreciate the invitation to be here with you today and to discuss a topic that I think is extremely important and I'm very passionate about, which is pre-planning funerals. Terrific. Yeah, Teresa, I'll jump to it first. I mean, we've been through a pandemic here, and I think people have a heightened sense of health and what could happen and maybe thinking about this more. So have more people started pre-planning memorial services in your experience? Definitely. So, you know, if I walk back to the beginning of my career, which was 25 years ago, so I started in funeral service in um, 1997 in beautiful Brandon, Manitoba, and back then, only a handful of people would uh, would do their their pre planning, um, you know. And and death and funerals were really taboo topics back then as well. So if we look, um, you know, ironically, I was actually hired to do the uh, pre planning program and to build and develop it 25 years ago. Um, if we fast forward now, you know, every funeral home has a has a website. People can sit and talk about it. Um, definitely, the the pandemic has uh, made people think about final final expenses and uh, wishes, and um, and people are more educated now. You know, with the internet, with with people like you um, in the the final planning with estates and trusts and wills, and um, that this funeral pre planning has become a whole part of that as well. Teresa, maybe you can walk us through that. So, so part of what this this show is about, called More Than Money, is about helping people understand what's available to them, things they can be thinking about, uh, and they can incorporate those ideas that they think are good for their family and so on and so forth. And I'm curious, um, to your point, I think that the the topic of passing along is uh, you know is taboo. It's certainly scary for many people. We've got an aging population, but it is a reality that we're all going to face as an individual and as a family. And I'm I'm curious about you just walking us through. The, the, pre, uh, the pre-planning process and, and for those that are apprehensive, maybe some ideas and thoughts about what they could expect or how you might overcome that. 
so that you can save the, you know, the anxiety and the stress that will inevitably happen if you, if you haven't thought this through. I'm going to go on the assumption that you've made that decision, that you're, you're ready to pre-plan and you're in the funeral home and, and we're starting that process. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is vital statistics. So when a person passes, we register their, their death with vital statistics. So we're going to ask for things like their legal name, date and place of birth, their parents' names, where they were born, social insurance number, occupation, et cetera, et cetera. That's the first part is the vital statistics. Second part would be what is the final form of disposition? Are you choosing a burial or are you choosing a cremation? If you're choosing burial or cremation, is there any type of a service? Are we having a service in a chapel? Are we going to a church? Are we going to your, your favorite pub? Um, are we going to the backyard? Where would that service be held? Um, we'll talk about things like a viewing. Would you want somebody to come and, and to see you prior, prior to the cremation or burial? And if so, would that be just your family? Or would you open that up to, to your friends and your, and your co-workers? Um, we would also talk about merchandise. So you have that opportunity to choose your own casket or your own cremation container if you're choosing cremation and your own urn. Um, the cemetery, where are you going to be laid to rest? Do you have a cemetery plot already? Or do you want an above-ground columbarium for your urn? Do you want your family to scatter? So we'll talk about those which I call kind of the, the meat and the bones, the, ma the main part of the planning. Um, and some people will leave it there and let their family make those other decisions such as music and flowers and pallbearers and who's the pastor or the person who's going to officiate or who's going to do the eulogy. Um, I actually have one gentleman who's the guy that always needs to have the last word and he's videotaped himself giving his own eulogy so that when that time comes he gets that final word. Um, so, so we plan all of that, then we're going to talk about the cost and what does this cost. And we have the option that people can leave what we call an unfunded funeral arrangement, an unfunded prearrangement, where all the wishes are there. And then whenever that time of need comes, the cost will be whatever the, that current price is. The other option families have um, that they can prepay and lock those prices in. So they would pay at today's rate and whether that service is needed in one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, the laws that govern us say that this is locked in and guaranteed and it's illegal for us to say, gee, the price of gas went up, I need a little more money. We've agreed and signed a contract for that. When people ask about prepaying and where does the money go, just so people know that that money is safe, it is held third party. Uh, most of the funeral homes in the city here and, and, and elsewhere in the province um, use insurance to, to hold the funds until the time of need. Teresa, we always talk about planning and sharing your wishes with family and and how with loved ones that the best way to relieve that burden feeling right the, that feeling of burden so how does pre-planning a memorial service do the same do you feel that that happens absolutely and probably the easiest way for me to to explain that would be to give you an example so probably about 23 years ago i had a, a lady in her 80s that came in and her husband had passed. And I said to her, would you like him buried or cremated? And she said to me, I don't know. We never had this conversation. So we talked about different options. She decided to have his casket present at the church for a service and to cremate him afterwards. And at the end of the service, she ran up to me and said, Teresa, please don't cremate him. I don't know that that's what I want to do. I said, take your time and make the decision. And a week went by and two weeks went by 
and I reached out to her and she was struggling so much because they didn't have the conversation and she couldn't decide if she should bury him or cremate him. So in the very least, when we talk about this, you know, let your loved ones know some of your wishes. Talk to your funeral home um, and get different ideas and, and make sure you communicate what you'd like to do in, in the least, right? We, we'd love for people to come into the funeral home and have everything down on pen and paper, but not everybody is comfortable doing that. So at least um, at the minimum, have that conversation. You know, I think the, the, the pre-planning and in, in, in that conversation, even your wishes expressed through your personal directives, your will, so on and so forth, right? To take the pressure. I mean, all of this pre-planning, Teresa, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but all the pre-planning is really designed to, one, ensure that your wishes uh, are respected and that service takes place in accordance with what you would want to have happen. But number two, it takes the burden of those decisions, the uncertainty, the anxiety around you know, a really difficult event that's taken place in the family. It takes a burden off everybody else. And ultimately, I think the experience then, which is a difficult one uh, you know, at, at best, um, becomes something very different without the anxiety of all the other things on top of it. Would that be a, a fair assessment of, uh, you know, of the results of taking care of those arrangements in advance? I've never had somebody say, gee, I wish mom or dad hadn't done this ahead of time. But the number of people that say, I'm so grateful that they came and did this and had everything laid out. And, you know, I'd ask your, your listeners a, a question right now, and it's an uncomfortable question. But if something happened to you right this moment and you passed, who is that person that then has to go and choose that funeral home, go and make those decisions, decide on burial and cremation and viewing and clothing and all of those things that have to be decided when you haven't laid out the groundwork for them. That's a really big task in the middle of, uh, of intense grief for families. Teresa, we've got about a minute to go and I'm going to ask you a question about trends. You've been in the business a long time. I'm very curious, just uh, on a personal uh, interest, what have you seen change over the past 20 years? Probably the biggest change that I've seen is the is the trend from that full church traditional funeral with a burial um, to a lesser expensive um, basic cremation. So a lot of families nowadays are saying, you know what, I don't want all the bells and the whistles. I just want a cremation and then I want my family to go have a party or go have a gathering somewhere else. Um, that the that traditional funeral has changed, right? We're seeing, you know, I want you to raise a glass and, and toast to me and I don't want you to cry. I want it to be more of a celebration. So a huge, huge um, difference in, in the 25 years, especially that I've been in the profession. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Teddy. But before we let you go, if somebody wants to get a hold of you for further information, how can they do that? Yeah, you can, uh, you can go to our website, which is choicememorial.com. Uh, you can call us at uh, 403-277-7343. That's Choice Memorial. Um, and we're here to educate people. We're, we're zero pressure. We're here to answer any questions that you have. We invite you to come in and, and talk to us. And uh, there's no pressure. We are just here to give you the information so that you can make an informed decision. Teresa, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Dave and Rob. We've been joined uh, by Teresa Jones, owner and funeral director at Choice Memorial. Uh, Rob, the last segment, uh, uh, when we talk about um, memorial planning, mm -hmm. okay, uh, there's a personal connection to you on that. Um, and to the extent that you're comfortable, maybe you, you can sort of share that experience. But I think it's, it's, it's relevant not just to that piece, but I also want to connect that to this bigger notion of the uncertainty that we're facing in the markets right mm -hmm. now. But maybe just as some context, Again, to the extent you're comfortable, share us your family's experience with uh, with this notion of, of pre-planning. 
Yeah. So my dad passed away 14 years ago, and so we had to. We there could have been some pre-planning because it was a known event that was going to happen at some point, but but there wasn't, right? So you were forced into all of these decisions and what was going to happen, and you know we went on my mom's wishes and whatnot. The problem is, is you 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 get to the point and you have to decide all these things and pre-plan my own mother's in front of her, right? Which is tough, right? right. That's a tough conversation at the time during grieving. And the process can be a little daunting, right? You right. you may feel like you're you're buying. We chatted about this before that you're you feel like you're buying a condo, right? Right. Right. Which which face do you which place do you want to face? Is it do you want to be by the river? What do you want to do? And it, it if it can feel like that, you really wish at that point, man. I wish we wish we had planned some of these things or thought about it so we didn't have to deal with this right now. Yeah, when you didn't have the emotion of it, yeah. right? When you weren't forced, like it, it's this notion of of. Uh, Faisal and I last week talked about different pain points, right? You're at a point of crisis, anxiety, transition in a family member, all these things. And inevitably, you, you have to have, your, your emotions have to be heightened, mm-hmm. right? And then when you're, when you're forced to be making decisions in an emotional state, well, sometimes, though, you know, it's not the decision that you would make if you weren't in that emotional state. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I talked to you and I listened to your experience about that, that's sort of what I took away. And, and as you and I were talking about it, um, you know, as we were thinking about this show, it, it struck us that 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 experience is similar to what people are experiencing right now in conversations that you've had with clients and mm-hmm. and others and, and myself as well. When we get down markets, when you get uncertainty about inflation and interest rates or whatever it is, right, insert uncertainty here, you tend to get um, the anxiety goes up. Yep. The emotion goes up. Right. And, and as we were talking about different conversations, you know, one of the things we talked about uh, that I think is important from a planning perspective is uh, is there's all kinds of uncertainty, legit concerns. I had a conversation this past week with a client about uh, the possibility of tactical nuclear weapons being used in the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the war there. And it was a, it was a fascinating conversation because emotionally this person came in and clearly was terrified of this outcome, right. not just from a humanitarian perspective, but what it would do then to, to their retirement savings and everything else. And I get it. Trust me, that's it, it's not a zero probability. Okay, um, It's a terrifying thing to think about, but we had to put it in context. What do we do about that, right, from a planning perspective? And we used a framework um, that I think was very helpful for them. And we, we talked about, okay, if, if we have to identify the assumptions under which we're planning for, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, let's insert tactical nuclear weapons in our investment strategy thesis. Okay, then we have to think about the probability of that event happening. Mm, no empirical math that you're going to be able to do, but you've got to come up with some probability of an event because emotionally, it, it's 100% always, mm-hmm. right? Well, if they're going to use this, I'm terrified and everything's going to be destroyed. Okay, so it's not a zero probability, but what's the probability that, that could happen? And we had to attach as a group a probability. And then we had to think about, okay, what asset classes would either protect uh, against that issue happening and or profit from it, right? And then we had to uh, integrate that assumption, the probability, and the asset classes into the overall wealth strategy, right? To come up with then an asset mix, a wealth strategy that made sense for them. Now, um, we ended up doing that. Again, we, it, it's it's a it's an educated guess at this particular point. But what it did do is it gave them a little sense of 
of, of control over integrating some protections, some, some layerings, mm -hmm. some different approaches to address their concerns, right? Now, how is that related to what you're talking about? When people get in heightened emotional states, right, whatever that fear is, that pain point that's creating the anxiety, tends to override everything else. Yeah. Right? And if we get into a position where we're, we're emotionally making that decision, right, with 100% certainty that that's going to be the outcome, that's where we get ourselves into it. We make decisions that maybe we wouldn't have made had we not been, you know, in that emotionally charged environment, whether it's planning for a passing of a, of a family member, right? right? Um, if it's cashing out, cashing out, going yeah. to cash, or, it's, you know, it's doing something very, very aggressive. Right. So I, I thought that that was an, you know, it was an interesting connection um, that, that we were dealing with and we'll, we'll likely be dealing with for a little bit of time here. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing, that 100% probability that future events will happen. Right. Right. I think that's the conversations that I've been having. For sure. Right. Yeah. And, and, and ask yourself the question. So when, when we put together um, uh, portfolio strategies, right, we think in terms of base case. Yep. But then you always humbly ask yourself, what if we're wrong? And you can be wrong two ways, right? You can be wrong and it's worse than you expect. You can be wrong and it's better than you expect. Almost never do we do you get it perfectly right because there's too many yep. moving pieces, right? But if you plan on the side of caution. Correct. Well, it just determine, right? Determine what your goals and objectives are. We tend to run a, a retirement business, so we tend to err on the side of protection in the right. event that something goes wrong, okay? That might that means often that you're leaving some on the table, right? On the way up, which frustrates people as well, but you got to pick your poison at some point, right? Yep. Uh, you got to pick your strategy, but you got to have a playbook too, Rob. And, and talk to me a little bit about this. You know, when when you put that that thesis together, um, things change all the time. We've talked about it. it's dynamic environment all the time, and so you can't just be thinking about today, but you have to be thinking about what you're going to do mm -hmm. if the data changes, right? Or if new input comes in, and so this notion of being dynamic and having the options in the event this happens, here's what we would do. In the event that this happens, here's what we would do. Now, here's I'm going to use a very dramatic example because using the conversation I had uh, with this couple about the tactical nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I said um, so. In this particular case, we built in a level of protection to their portfolio that would be different than our base case because of these assumptions. I said so. What shakes us off this position? Because I said here's what I'm going to plant the seed this, uh, the seed with you on. If that event comes to pass, a, a tactical nuke gets lit up, that, as scary as it's going to be, will be your buying opportunity. Because right. the alternative is if it goes further and it's a global nuclear war, nothing we talk about today is going to matter. Right. Right? So it's either it's game over or that's as bad as it, and it's going to go up from there. Anyways, I hope that framework helps. We've got to, we've got to wrap up this, uh, this segment. Uh, but before we do that, we should talk to everybody about our upcoming seminar. You got it. Join us Tuesday, May 24th, 7 p.m., live online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. On behalf of Rob and myself, Dave, thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. 
David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.